It's Gigi and Nick. You're listening to Michigan Voices. On today's show, we'll investigate the following mystery. What the heck is the deal with Gen Z? Let's talk about it. I mean, we think we're great. Older people sometimes think maybe we're not so great. Maybe we're overdramatic, we're entitled, dependent, maybe a little snobby. And yet, weirdly enough, it feels like there might be something special about Gen Z. We're not just annoying to other generations. We're also these emerging voters, and we're sort of becoming a political force to be reckoned with. We had a crazy summer, okay? Lots of apocalyptic things going on. We were in quarantine, you know, relearning how to be social beings, how to be well, how to be alive in a pandemic. And then, boom, right in front of our faces, the morality and purpose of policing is brought into question. The country asked, whose lives matter? The rescission of DACA is put to a Supreme Court vote. The west side of the country is burning in wildfires. This and lots more were going on this summer. Also this summer, we saw young people all over the country leading marches, protests, rewriting the rules to social media, making change. This November, in a really strange but crucial election, we saw the highest recorded youth voter turnout in the history of modern politics. So, again, what the heck is the deal with Gen Z? Let us talk about it. Our show today will be in three parts. In part one, we'll talk about the many ways of understanding the context in which Gen Zers have grown up. What sorts of crazy things have happened during our lifetimes? What does it mean that we've grown up along with some insane technological advancements? Are we actually as cool as we think we are, or are we naive? Then, in part two, we'll get some storytelling going. Our Gen Z guests will tell us some tales from their own lives that shed light on their current political mindset. Part three rolls around, and we'll tackle the question of moving forward. What happens now that Biden is the president-elect? What will become of Generation Z? You'll find out. Stay tuned. Throughout the show, you'll hear many voices from Gen Z, and also our Gen X friend, Mika, who's a political science professor at the University of Michigan. Part one, World on Fire. In part one, we're gonna take a moment to understand Gen Z. For one thing, many of us grew up watching Disney Channel. At this point, we'd love to play a song that we just have no type of copyright for. Luckily for you guys though, Gigi and I are both acapella enthusiasts, so here is our royalty-free rendition. I don't want to be like Cinderella, sitting in a dark old dusty cellar, waiting for somebody to come and set me free. <laughs> I don't want to be like someone waiting for a handsome prince to come and save me. Oh, I will survive unless somebody's on my side. Don't want to be no, no, no one else. I'd rather rescue myself. You know when you like rewatch the TV shows that we sort of grew up on? And you sort of see like all the main characters be super independent, like like the Cheater Girls. They had a, their song like Cinderella, like I don't need a man, I'm I'm independent, I can do whatever I want. And then sort of like going after their dreams, 
and I know it sounds super random, but Alex Russo is like such a bad bitch. She literally like did whatever she wanted. She was super sassy and everyone's like, why do you act like that? And she was like, this is just who I am. You don't think of Disney as being super empowering, but now looking back on those shows, a lot of the like female characters were very strong and don't they don't like stick to the status quo and they sort of stand up for what they believe in no matter like who is against them. And I think growing up with that sort of mentality and watching that on TV has had such a huge effect on us because we grew up with the world kind of like on fire, like the world has been on fire our whole lives. The war on terror and like the recession, police brutality, and then we had Trump. So many things have happened in our lifetime. Like, like most of us are 21 and we have single-handedly seen the first black president. You know, we were eight years old when that happened. I was 15 years old when gay marriage was made legal. I was 13 when Trayvon Martin's killer, George Zimmerman, was acquitted. And I was like 15 when Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson. Like, we grew up with that. Like, we've, we've lived through a lot in like our 18 to 21 years of life. Crisis being normal is normal. It's like just the way that you grow up. Because we, you know, we're born... And then 9-11 happens, and then we grow up in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars are happening, and then there's the recession. And I distinctly remember watching on the news for years and years, because, you know, since I was little, I would watch the news every night. And every night, the unemployment numbers would tick up, and gas prices would tick up, and evictions, and et cetera. And so, you know, that's what I'm watching when I'm eight. That's my idea of the economy. I've grown up in a world where my, like, ever since I, like, almost ever since I was born, my country has been at war. My brother, like, my little brother, 100% of his life, we've been at war. Um, you know, I've, I've lived through, like, two major economic recessions. I am, like, looking at a future where I can't afford to, like, pay off my loans, have health insurance, and, like... <laughs> live somewhere bigger than a shoebox um and also where i'm looking at like at my like my home being destroyed in in climate field disasters and i think all like almost every young person in the united states is, is looking at a future like that you know where our lives will will be worse than our parents unless something really really major changes so what really bugs me about gen z bashing is that we are complaining about you as sort of, um, I don't know, cuddled snowflakes, when in fact you face more challenges than many generations, certainly more than my generations in terms of the competitiveness of getting into college, getting jobs, doing well. You, your generation were born with 9-11, you've seen the second worst recession in 150 years, and now you are maybe seeing a third one and you're dealing with the worst pandemic in all of our lifetimes. Okay, so in many ways, things are a hot mess. They are right now, and they have been for our whole lives. Although, maybe that's just a matter of perspective. Katie from Athens, Georgia, will tell us a little bit about this. So, like, I think, I think we are very inclined to see ourselves as at the beginning of an apocalypse narrative, probably because of all the YA novels we read about apocalypses or about dystopians when we were younger. Like we grew up on like the Hunger Games, post-apocalyptic society, Divergent, post-apocalyptic society, Matched, post-apocalyptic society, Pretties, Uglies, like all of it, all of it. We just like 
just ate up constantly maze runner all of it just ate all of these narratives it's like your world ended this is the world that followed and so of course we're gonna be like oh shit well when's our world gonna end and then, <laughs> then it's like recession fascist president pandemic it's like well now well now is when our world is gonna end cool 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 the world is gonna end that is the mindset that we've grown up on Mika is going to give us some historical insight on this phenomenon. In Europe, after the end of the Cold War, like late 90s, early 2000s, we began to see this sort of new kind of a social movement. It was broader than a social movement, but young folks who started calling themselves the precariat, taking the Marxist concept of proletariat and taking the concept of precarity and combining that into sort of a class term. And... And the idea was that these are folks, young folks, even university-educated young folks, immigrants, and interestingly, older uh, industrial workers whose lives were cha being changed because of globalization, found themselves in a situation where the things that they had been able to count on in the past were actually no longer available. So this idea of precarity was, was an important political motivation for for a long time in Europe. And then, then it came to the US in 2008 with the Re Great Recession. Increasingly, the same precarity now applies to young people. I actually wrote an article in around 2007, sort of puzzling why there is no precariat in the US. And the argument at that point was that uh, it's because of the American dream. The ideology of American dream makes people think that I can pull up myself up by my bootstraps in a way that others can't. After 2008, it has been harder to have faith in that. So I think this whole idea of precarity, the uncertainty about future is a hugely important part of your generation's lives right now. I have a good salary. I have a nice house. You probably will as a University of Michigan graduates but it's certainly far more uncertain. And that shapes how you see the world. It's not just on fire, it's not just at war, which both of which are true, but it is also very uncertain. So we grew up in these wild, uncertain times with this dystopian mindset. Maybe all these things have made us into better change makers. The best change making happens when you have a genuine stake in it. When like you have something to lose and a lot to win, like in a really personal way. And I think that in a really real way, like young people have so much to lose and everything to win. It sucks that like high schoolers have to be on the front lines of this global movement, but it's our future. And like the people uh, before us just didn't really decide to step up. So like we have to kind of prematurely step into this position of like, we have to fight. I think that young people throughout history have been some of the best at actualizing the change that they want to see in the world. And I think that, you know, young people sort of come from a different philosophy. It's on us to try to change that. We're, you know, we're, we're out here, we're ready to make change. You know, we're, we're young, we're, we're passionate, you know, maybe we're naive, but maybe that's a good thing. All of that combined has led to highest uh, youth voter turnouts. Hmm, maybe we're naive, but maybe that's a good thing. Is that a good thing? Mika has some thoughts. Even if there is naivete about some things, and there may be, and I, I can talk about some of, the, some of the ways in which I think there is naivete, Sometimes that naivete is helpful, a, a little bit of 
kind of enlightened myopia, I called it in my dissertation, which is understanding that the world is more complex than this, but I need to believe X, Y, and Z to be able to pursue the goals I have. If I just admit that nobody's right, and yes, it's so complex and it's hard to make change, then that can lead to a kind of paralysis that we don't want. Whoa, enlightened myopia? Those are some big words, but what do they mean exactly? Mm, I'm glad you asked. It's sort of like selective hearing, I guess. You know, sometimes hearing only what you want to hear can be a way to protect yourself. Mika's saying that being selectively blind, so seeing only what we want to see, can help us get things done. So a little bit of naivete, a little bit of excessive faith in one's abilities is not a bad thing, as long as it comes with some healthy dose of, at, at, at least at crucial moments, of healthy dose of skepticism so that you won't then be so crushed and disappointed when what you wanted didn't come true. I see this in particular a little bit in some of the incredible enthusiasm that, say, Bernie generated. That's it's On the one hand, it's really great to see. It's on the other hand, it's uh, not just naivete, but a kind of um, narrow-mindedness about no compromise, that if it's not Bernie, it can't be anybody else. I mean, there are still some people who thought like that in this election, and and that's arguably kind of a misunderstanding of what politics is about. It's not just the young people, of course, but but for the most part, the, the naivete that is there is is good because it's energizing, as long as it's not so naive and so um, sort of myopic that you will not act if you don't get what you want. So Mika's saying we should be productive with our blindness, not dumb. Let's switch gears here and talk about another weird thing that we do. Our generation seems to be really into our phones. Technology? Technology is amazing. I mean... Some people are like, all right, you know, get off your phones. But I don't think people realize, uh, especially like older generation, realize how much, how impactful that is to what we do. I mean, look, look, like, look what we're doing now, like an interview through a computer, I think like, and we're talking about something like this, like I think that's impactful. And I think also like me, maybe afterwards, like tweeting, like I just had this amazing interview. I'm able to tell people what we talked about and what we did and things like that. And I think we have, this um, this way of sharing instantly and making sure that people can see and you can tell a friend that can tell a friend that can tell somebody over halfway across the world. I'm a girl from Philadelphia and she might be somebody from from Africa and that person might be from Australia. But the fact that we can instantly talk to each other and share our concerns and stand by something so much bigger than who we are and who anybody is. It's like amazing. Social media is such an empowering way to like organize, but also to inform because it can be like really daunting to like read a really long CNN article. But if you if your friend posts something on Instagram, like not that you should only get your news from Instagram or like whatever social platform, but I think it makes activism a lot more accessible to people, especially to teens where it really hasn't been before. Um, like there's breakdowns of policy and there's kind of explanations and people telling their stories and it makes it so accessible to like hear those other perspectives. 
post stuff that you think people are going to be mad about and like make them reevaluate what they believe in, even if you're going to lose friends over it. Ask yourself sometimes. Sometimes you got to ask yourself, like, am I just posting this because everybody else is posting it? Or does this really like mean something to me? Because I've done it before where I'm like, oh, I'm just going to repost this because but I'm like, no, like th this is serious. Like, it's not something you just post on Instagram just to post, like post it because you believe it, post it because you want to see something change within whatever you're posting or you want to somehow be active in whatever's going on. Technology, technology matters. We know about all the negative aspects of social media, which are real, but the way in which uh, technology has made a speed of information and connection so much faster throughout the world is a huge difference. So it is in fact possible to have not just a sort of geopolitical international connection to admiring Greta Thunberg, for example, but that you can read her tweet five seconds after she tweets it creates a sort of a sense of global engagement that is unprecedented. So that's definitely one, one thing that is unique for this generation. It of, of course, affects us too, my generation, in the sense that we have the same tools available for us, news travels fast and so on. But your generation is able to take advantage of that in lots of different ways that I think our generation isn't yet or hasn't really fully caught on. I mean, certainly some people have. And Trump is pretty good at using Twitter cleverly for whatever whatever one thinks about that. Something that's important to realize and that a few of our guests have brought up is that the internet and technology give us access to everything. And that's not always a good thing. It's kind of like constantly being exposed to a plethora of knowledge while also being constantly exposed to a plethora of trauma. And so that's like sort of the task that we have. So trauma is on display. Something to think about, you know, as you watch the news or before you post on Instagram. Part two. Story time. Our guests tell us stories from their own lives that help explain why they feel the way they feel. First, Abby's childhood home is being destroyed in climate disasters. I don't know if you guys saw like the like the wildfires that were happening this um, this fall. Um, I'm so I'm originally from yeah from Portland, Oregon. I like grew up there. I moved to Philly in in third grade, but it's definitely like it's still like my god family lives there. It's still very much my home. Um, and this was the first year actually that like fire like wildfires have always been a problem in California and in Oregon. Um, but this was the first year they actually like made it to the the Portland suburbs. Um, and and Portland suburbs had to be evacuated. And yeah, they were like threatening. Um, all of the like all of these places that I that were like this like huge part of my childhood. There's like the Columbia River Gorge, um, Mount Hood, and yeah, just like my my neighborhood, which is kind of it's like on the edge of of Southeast Portland. And I remember like the day that I saw that was like I like could not work because I was just like crying all morning. Um, but I am so terrified of. It makes me like so sad and like so scared thinking about those places that I like call home, those places that I grew up in, like disappearing in my lifetime, um, like being destroyed. 
Um, I think that makes me really like sad more than it makes me angry, um, honestly. Living in LA, Lucy feels the impacts of climate change on her teenage years in very tangible ways. I, I live in like the more metropolitan area of LA. Um, so I don't have like, and we aren't really hit by the fires, but um, for a couple years I lived in the valley and I lived like right near the mountains. So you would always see like, it kind of like started to get really bad like a couple years ago. Like you would always see smoke and kind of have to like check your phone and like check the air quality and make sure like, oh, like do I have to like be careful today and like limit how much I go outside and like, um, some of my friends who lived like further in the valley or in more like kind of like rural areas, they would like I would see them post on social media like everyone stay safe like we're evacuating right now. So like on social media, pretty much like every year, like around the fall, winter, everyone's just posting like here's what to do if you have to evacuate and like resources. And so it kind of like feels like a mini doomsday every year seeing the wildfires. Also, like the summers are super, super hot, like. I used to go to camp a lot and like before I could just go to camp, but like a, like a couple years ago when I was in middle school and I would have to go like we would have to stay inside a lot because like it was so hot that it was like legally unsafe for us to be outside for like an hour or something like that. Like we couldn't like be outside because like we would get heat stroke. So yeah, like it's kind of impacted like daily life, but I haven't been super impacted and I have to like really like recognize my privilege in that. Like I don't live in a low income community and I'm not a person of color. And so those communities in Los Angeles have definitely been affected a lot more than I am. But I think like it's really important for people in places of privilege to look outside their bubble and recognize like what's happening across your state, across your country. Abby tells us of a young person she met from Kentucky whose community is being ravaged by the coal industry. The story goes like this. A few years ago, in February of 2019, Abby went to a sit-in at Mitch McConnell's office in D.C. They were protesting a sham vote McConnell was holding about the Green New Deal. Also at the protest was a group of young people, people Abby's age, who had come from Kentucky to do the sit-in. I like grew up listening to this John Prine song about um, Muhlenberg County. Wait, it's like... All right, Nick, that is our cue. You want to sing it? I'm ready. I'm ready. Nick is going to be John Prine. John Prine. Imagine there are sort of some square dancey violins going on in the background here. <clears throat> and daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County, down, down by, by the, the Green River, River where paradise lay. Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking. Mr. Peabody's coal train has hauled it away. And the whole song is about how this, like, boy used to go there with his dad um, to go fishing and hiking and how, and, like, that was, like, where they spent time together and how they couldn't anymore because the, like, coal mining company had, like, torn it all up and taken it away. And I was, like, standing in this in this office, and there was, like, the sitting going on, and this young person from Kentucky was, like, telling the story about how they, like, actually grew up in that county. And we're talking about, yeah, how, like, all of the, like, strip mining and other, like, fossil fuel extraction that was happening there was causing these, like, massive floods because of the erosion and had, like, yeah, it was, like, threatening their family's home and how they, like, might have to move all these people in their community had black lung disease and like weren't employed anymore, like, you know, had like forced retirement when they were 50. Everybody they knew had been like 
chewed up and spit out by the, like the coal industry. And like, I don't know. I just like remember having this moment of like, just like the most extreme rage and grief I'd ever felt in my life and just feeling like so connected to them in that moment. And like, yeah, I just remember having this thing that was like, this is it for me. Like I need to do this for the rest of my life. I need to like give everything I have to, yeah, to making the Green New Deal reality and to like fighting, fighting for a world where, where none of that happens anymore. Yeah, it was like a big, I don't know. I like left and I was like, okay, like this is it. Sydney's neighborhood in Detroit is being transformed in a way that is very disturbing to her. Like for example, my community, my community is being heavily gentrified. I love my neighbors. I have, I have my next door neighbor is the best neighbor I've ever had in my life. Like he'll always probably be like a friend of our family. He moved in a couple years ago and he's white. And I remember it was so shocking because I live in a black community as, as all my life has always been black. And so like he was the first person, the first white person to move into this block besides the, the very old lady at the end of the street. He was like the first like millennial white person to move into this block. And since then, our whole everywhere you go, like there are like four, probably like four or five houses on just this block that have new white families. The house across the street is up for sale where my one of my best friends growing up lived. So just sort of like seeing the community become more beautiful, like all these shops we put up, they just put up new signs, they put up new sidewalks. It's just a really cute place. Like it's, it's becoming a very cute spot in Detroit to just want to be and feel safe. And they're doing it because they know that white people are moving here. And that is disturbing to me because the black community has been here forever and there was no developer investment in the community before. So it's like, I find that like they planted trees in front of our houses. It's just become a cuter place. They have community gardens everywhere, which is nice for the people who live here. The people who own their houses here, for example, like my mom or like, you know, some of our neighbors who own their houses. But what about the people who are renting in this area? Like they're going to. They're going to be pushed out really soon because the, if not already, because property here is going to be super expensive. I see like the beautification of these communities that is not for the intention of gentrifying. Investing in black communities, not because white people are going to be here. That's something I see changing. When Donald Trump was elected to the presidency, Mariana was living in Texas. She was 17. His election and every day after felt like an attack on her identities. Donald Trump's election, um, I'm sure a lot of people can relate. Like I sat on my couch and cried until like two in the morning that day. That election kind of just affirmed to me that like me, my parents, who we are, like immigrants, Latinx people, we speak Spanish in public. Like those are things that literally half this country just doesn't like. I was three months away from voting in 2016. Like my class, class of 2021 in college, most of us um, were less than a year away from being able to vote. And we saw in front of our eyes, our country choose someone who the majority of the people I am friends with just absolutely abhor. Like we saw a decision being made that will impact us for the rest of our lives made without any of our input. And that was just heartbreaking for us. Like it was awful. It was awful seeing a country of majority white people. And men, it was awful seeing these demographics vote for someone when I, as a young Latinx immigrant woman, didn't have a voice. That really sucked. So all these last four years, like we were like 2020, like we're doing it. We're coming out. And I think the youth turnout vote this year was like incredible. 
And she's right. In some states, youth voters did come out strong in 2020. In Georgia specifically, an astounding 1 million youth voters made their voice heard at the polls this year. Even nationally, there was a 10-point spike in the percentage of ballots cast by 18 to 29-year-olds compared to that of 2016. Katie's high school in Athens, Georgia, clearly showed her some messed up educational and economic inequity. In a way, that's made her really upset at capitalism and at institutions and existing systems in general. Athens, where I'm from, where I am right now, I believe Clark County is, when I was growing up, I think it was the fifth poorest county in the nation. Now I think it's something like the fourth. I don't, I don't have verification on that statistic, but that's the one that goes around town. And so you get a lot of really intense income stratification. And Athens is also really diverse as, as a city, as a county. My high school, for instance, Clark Central High School in Athens, is literally located on the fraternity and sorority row of the University of Georgia. And so it's this high school flanked on either side by these like enormous Georgian mansions and some of the most privileged kids in my state. Uh, and my school was very, very poor, always lacking for funds. A lot of the student body was in pretty intense poverty in a real cycle of poverty that's persisted in Athens. I was a journalist with my high school news magazine program. When I was a sophomore or junior, my advisor in that program, Katie, I want you to do a story about, about illiteracy. He's like, I want you to write about literacy at Clark Central. And I thought, why? What do you, why, do you want me to write about reading programs? Do you want to do, like, English classes? What do you want me to do here? But then he kind of puts me on the right track, and I delve into it and find out that, like, there was a huge literacy problem at my school that I just didn't know about. When you get into the income stratification, then if you are in a high school, then that gets into the kind of educational track stratification. But I, you know, in that story, I started talking to a bunch of folks including one teacher who said explicitly, like, there are two Clark Centrals. There's the Clark Central where kids are eating, like, kids are eating hot Cheetos for breakfast because they don't expire when the power goes out. And then there's the Clark Central of the advanced placement kids who are the children of professors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, like, every single part of everybody's experience gets stratified often along the lines of privilege. Just as a result of, like, the straight up demographics of my school, we were fairly politically involved and aware. Even if people weren't, you know, explicitly like campaigning for anything, everybody knew, everybody knew when deportation raids were happening. Everybody knew that the systems around us were messed up. I hope we do. I hope we do all get involved. And I hope we do so in favor of socialism. Anyway. Part three, the rocky path ahead. There are some very real concerns about how we'll move forward from this current moment. Is this whole thing, the, the protests, the marches this summer, the political commentary we've been seeing on Instagram, all of that, is it all just temporary? Will it stick around? Mika's worried. It is really interesting to see how political position taking for your generation is becoming 
more of a, it's not a norm, but it's acceptable. The worry I have, it's, it's not a major worry, but the worry I have about that is that it can easily become a fad. So many things, not just in social media, but you know, throughout society are just fashionable things. I'm from Finland and you know Finland in the 60s and 70s had lots of uh, lefty activism like lots of European and North American countries and fall 1972 25% of University of Helsinki students said that they actively identified as Stalinists. Now this is 20 years after Stalin is dead at a point where pretty much most even lefties admit that Stalin was a horrible dictator. And these are university students. So what's going on? It has to be just a fad. We saw something similar in the late 60s, early 70s in the US, where much of the anti-war sentiment, however justified and however thoughtful and excellent it was in terms of helping change policy, was also just a cool thing to do. So I worry a little bit that for some people, the position taking the political identification right now is just the same as, you know, Uggs for, from last winter or, you know, your Canada Goose coat or whatever, just sort of fashion or fad markers. It's not, of course, I, I don't want to belittle it, but that's the worry that for some people it's just like, it's a cool thing to do. Could this be just a fad? Honestly, maybe. Sydney, for one, is also worried about this, although she thinks about it in a little bit of a different way. She's afraid of these scary things that she calls lulls of complacency that tend to happen in patterns historically. Historically, there's like ups and downs. We go through these valleys where there's like a lot of oppression and people standing up and revolting and protesting and blah, 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 yada, yada. And then something great happens. Like finally, black people are able to vote. Women are able to vote, blah, blah, blah. And there are things that seem to happen or a black president is elected. And we go through these like lulls of like complacency and bliss and women are women are now allowed to wear pants and like women are feeling empowered and a, a black man is president and so racism is gone and yada yada and blah 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 and, and and then we get hit with reality again after a couple of years like oh racism is not dead women are still not empowered black people are still very oppressed and and in very uh systemic institutional ways that are likely maybe even worse because now we can't see it, you know, the way that we could see it before. So as an example, you could say that the eight years of the Obama administration were one of these lulls that Sydney's talking about. A black man was president, so racism was solved. But then 2016 comes around and the spell is broken once more. The rose-colored glasses are ripped off and the reality of our nation is revealed. And Sydney, honestly, she's grateful it happened. And so like, that's sort of where I hold sort of an opinion about the whole Trump thing. I feel like we got almost like an opportunity to be released from the shackles of our law that we were in about the, about the state of oppression and racism in this country because of Trump, because Trump didn't create the racism that he had. He was only merely a vessel of it. And um, he uh, sort of exposed what the country truly was. So I, I feel grateful that I got to be able to witness that that reality rather than being sort of in the state of bliss where I believe that there was no racism anymore in our country and that we were truly equal. The worry is that now that Trump has been voted out of office and Joe Biden is on his way in, we'll settle into another period of blissful ignorance. 
It's scary, but it is possible that, boom, anti-racism, it could be thrown out like an old pair of filas to make room for new Air Force Ones. Climate activism, it could be tossed to the side like a stale TikTok trend. As our guests will tell you, things like this, they just can't happen. We aren't going to be existing in a society that is in a low. We're going to be existing in a society that sees what needs to be changed, and we're going to be the ones who have to do something about it. It is our responsibility, it is our obligation as young people to recognize that there's still so, so, so much work to be done. Now that Joe Biden has won and is our president-elect, like, I'm not about to get complicit. Like, the job is far from over. We can't assume that just because now we have, you know, a very, very moderate Democrat president or a very, you know, very, very, very moderate woman as vice president that we're good. Like, everything is good. Now we can go back into a low because that's not that's just certain. That's certainly not the case. 2016 was when I got really fired up. But the reality of it is like, this isn't where we stop. This is actually where we push harder. We need to be applying 10 times, 20 times more pressure to the people who are in the office now than we were applying to Trump. Because now, like, we have to push like Joe Biden to actually adopt these progressive policies. This is the time when we might actually be able to push something through that's that's meaningful rather than allowing ourselves to be sort of blinded by some sort of belief that things are actually changing when they're not. Now we have someone in the White House who will maybe kind of give us actually a little bit time of day rather than someone in the White House who every day would actively disavow all my identities. I'm not saying don't be excited. We have a, a woman who went to Howard. My whole family went to Howard. That's exciting. And AKA, like a lot of women in my family, for example, are AKs. You should be proud to, to see yourself in, in that office. I'm just saying that like, don't let the, the pride that you feel as a woman cloud your, that, 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 oomph that you had this summer that was like, we need to do something about what's going on. If nothing else, allow the fact that you finally see someone that you can relate to in the office push you to apply the kind of pressure that you know you have in you, you know? So what I'm hearing here, Gigi, is that we can't stop now. Now is not the time for a new lull, and now is certainly not the time to move on to some new fad or fashion. We have to act now. Yes, yes, Nick. But the thing is, how can we act, you know? Like, what does taking action look like? Sydney starts us off. I know that right now we're sort of in a place, especially with COVID going on and all that, where we don't know how to move forward, that a lot of people feel like like they, they know what's going on. They've been completely bombarded with knowledge, but they've been completely subdued by the trauma, you know, like completely clouded by this feeling of helplessness. And to you guys, I say that there are so many ways you can push forward the agenda. That doesn't mean, you know, you start a nonprofit or you are the person with the with the megaphone in front of everybody else yelling the chance at a protest. That doesn't those types of things like the person standing in front of the protest, if they were by themselves, it would mean nothing. If they were the person who started a nonprofit to do whatever it was that they're doing in their community, if they didn't have people to support it, that would mean nothing. So just getting involved in any way you can, writing letters, calling your Congress people, reading, doing the footwork, talking to your racist uncle, talking to your to your bigoted auntie or your cousin or whoever, like that those types of little things, those types of movements in your community, that type of 
release of complacency, at the very least, the release of your complacency is an enormous step forward. Growth is important in a person, and it's also important to share your growth. So that way I can tell you what, what I learned and, and you can tell me what you learned and together we'll grow into another, you know, another beautiful flower that grows into a garden and then into something, you know, so much more. And now we're looking at like a forest full of like beautiful trees and a beautiful minds, I guess. Um, I don't know. Maybe this is just me. Maybe this is just me. But I feel like right now, at least the number one thing is to care about people and care about the people around you. And then I think even after this moment, I think we would all be better served if we think of politics and if we think of activism as trying to care for people and trying to be able to care for our country. I would also say try to put yourself in situations where you're surrounded by people who are different from you. Seek out people in your life who are different than you. Just because I think as humans, we're all very similar. We're the same, but we live in structures that force us to think that we're different. And I think when you sort of leave your comfort zone, you realize that there's a lot more in common and it sort of humanizes a lot of different things. Because at the end of the day, even if you're not impacted by these policies, like, you know, someone in your life who is. If you can get enough young people that'll, that can honestly say, I care about politics or I care about what's going on in the world just simply because I understand that even if it doesn't directly involve me by my identity, it involves the people who I care about. And therefore, our our liberties are tied up as one. Then I think that that's how we can like sort of empower our generation to be sort of the change agents of, of our society right now. As long as like white students or as long as students who don't feel impacted by white supremacy, for example, don't feel empowered to do something about it, then we'll just be we'll just be out here struggling because <laughs> everybody's not on board. If we as a generation decide this is what we want to do, then I think that we can get something done. I really don't know what's going to happen with young people. The positive signs are that it is a global movement. Again, it's not just Swedish girl Greta Thunberg and a bunch of Americans. It's young people around the world, which is really great. And it's not just a single election. It's broader issues. It's, it's the pandemic. It's the precarity and uncertainty about future, whether it's environmental or political or economic, that probably, I hope, is going to keep your generation active even as you age and become even more mature and thoughtful. So I, I, I have a lot of hope. I think we're a more accepting generation. I think we've been, we've been exposed to a lot more things in such a short amount of time that I can't even imagine what's going to happen in the next 20 to 30 years. And all the change that we're going to enact, I really, I'm really hopeful. Sometimes it feels like the things are so bad um, in such a like, huge systemic way that it feels like yeah that there isn't that it won't ever be fixable and that like you know just like we as like individual people and especially as individual young people like can't do anything that would that would actually make things like can't fix it like can't make things better um and sometimes I feel like that um it's just like it's easy to feel really hopeless um and something that really grounds me that I like sharing with other people is just like thinking about all of the times in our in our like very recent history where mass movements of of people, mass movements of young people, social movements have won, have like really changed this country. Like just like thinking about the New Deal, even in like the 30s and how 
organized workers, organized unions, organized unemployed folks, organized young people really did form this like massive movement for the New Deal and like forced FDR to like, like institute it, right? Like FDR was not like a trade unionist, um, just like LBJ was not a civil rights leader. If enough of us like step up, engage in direct action, like social movements like can and do win and they like will win in the United States. Abby and Lucy are both part of the Sunrise Movement. So Sunrise is a movement of young people fighting to stop climate change and create millions of good jobs in the process. We're fighting for a Green New Deal, which is a plan to make the entire United States um, run on renewable energy by 2030 in line with what science and justice demand. So we're building like a mass movement of young people who are like actively engaged in the fight for a Green New Deal. And we're also like trying to elect Green New Deal champions at every level of government. Abby works for the movement full-time in West Philly, and Lucy, who's 15, by the way, is the treasurer for her branch in LA outside of high school. Check it out on sunrisemovement.org. Sydney is a senior in the Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan. She has her own podcast, The Sit Down. Check it out on Spotify. Faith is a junior at the University of Michigan. She's originally from Philly. Angel is a freshman at Temple University. She's also my neighbor and longtime friend. She is amazing. Andrew is the president and founder of Students for Biden at the University of Michigan. Katie is a lifelong Georgia resident and now a junior at Emory University in Atlanta. Mariana was born in Columbia, and then she moved to Maryland and then Texas. Now she's a senior in the Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan. Mika is a professor of political science and the director of the honors program at the University of Michigan. He's also a rock climber, adventure enthusiast, and all around really cool dude. Nick and I are just two nerds making a pod for the cause. <laughs> <laughs> this has been Democracy Unmuted. Thanks for listening. 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 Is it like that? Thank you guys so much for listening to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was fun. I don't want to be no Cinderella. <laughs>